Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 27 of Vassals of Kingsgrave's Agatha Christie reread. Today, we're covering the iconic book, And Then There Were None, originally published in 1939. My name is Bina007, and I will be your host today. And I welcome back to the podcast, Hannah. Hi, it's uh, Wing Shadow on the Discord. And we welcomed her, the Agatha Christie cast for the first time, Bing. Hi, uh, I was very long time ago, Drew Shiner in the forums, but just Bing now. And we'll be joined by 2.0, aka Pat, a little bit later on. Uh, Bing, as this is your first time on the Agatha Christie cast, maybe it's worth telling the listeners, are you a big Christie fan in general, or is it just something about this book in particular? Yeah, uh, I was sort of in a pre-chat talk, talking about this a little bit, but yeah, I'm actually not that big of a, I guess, a Christie head. I don't know how you guys, what do you guys call this, uh, their, her fandom these days. Um, I've read, I think, three books by her, uh, this one, uh, and I think uh, Death on the Nile. The Oriental, the 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 the, the, train, the train one. Sorry, <laughs> again, this just sort of shows my uh, lack of familiarity with her her oeuvre, if you will. Um, but this book is a little bit different in that. So I read this book for English class in middle school, which for some reason none of the other books I read for that class left a very strong impression on me, and I I wasn't very good in that class. But this book um, spoke to me, which I don't know. First of all, I don't know if you should be assigning this book for middle school kids. <laughs> I was just going to say, that's amazing. Yeah. And second of all, what does that say about me that I took very strongly to this book? <laughs> and I'm not in generally a big mystery uh, novel fan in general. So it's not really a problem with Agatha Christie, but just generally this is not my genre. Uh, but I really like this book, even today, beyond just a nostalgia fact, because it doesn't really read much like a mystery book. Uh, it's almost a thriller, I guess. That's my interpretation. And I think that's right. I think there's lots of people who love this book because it is a very dark, mysterious thriller. And it isn't typical of a lot of other Agatha Christie's. So I think it's perfectly possible to love this book and, and not read all the Miss Marples or whatever. Um, <laughs> Hatton, why don't you talk us through your relationship with this book? Because I know this is absolutely one of your favorite. Uh, well, before I say that, I will preface being while you're talking, I tried to look up what does an Agatha Christie mega fan call oneself? And it yielded no results, but I would have to say Chris, Christieites or Christophiles, maybe? Oh, nice. Mm -hmm. Although I, I don't think that I maybe would fall into that category even myself. I'm not, I wouldn't call myself an expert. I can't even solve them, but I'm mm -hmm. along for the ride. I, I have a kind of a similar um, thing. This was one of the first uh, like independent novels uh, with you know no picture book that I read um, and I had seen when I was really young my sister's high school had done stage adaptation of this and Arsenic and Old Lace all in the same year their drama club and it, so it was a, sort of a compare and contrast thing because one's a comedy one's not and she had uh, been helping with like costuming on it and uh and my mom had been helping so we were around and i remember seeing the rehearsals and really loving it but uh the older i get it remains one of my favorites for exactly that reason it's very unlike the others there is no okay now everyone sit down and i'll sum up you know there's no you know monologuing from some brilliant mind that's almost superhuman it's i mean i i spoilers but there is the epilogue but it's not it's not really the same right mm. and just the tone and the and the writing 
the way the POVs shift from character to character. We get a little of that, I guess, in like Death in the Clouds and Cards on the Table when they're off doing their own, you know, investigations. But um, I I suppose as much as I like Xander's boy, HP, uh, it's refreshing to have sort of a book where you feel like you're on even footing with the major players and the victims of the story. Mm. Um, and it's, it, I love this one for the same reason that it falls into my top three fairly evenly with Crooked House and Endless Night. They're all different. They're all very like a departure from all of her other works that at least I'm familiar with. Absolutely. Um, and how about you, Pat? Where would this fall for you in the Agatha Christie pantheon? There's a lot to talk about with this one. I find it difficult to say this is a bad book because I think it's easy, easily one of the best written ones that she's done. But personally speaking, it's not for me. For all the reasons that everybody loves it, I probably dislike it. So there's no human warmth in it. It's very dark. I find it extremely pessimistic. So And it's just too dark for me. Like even books that are extremely pessimistic, like some of George's stuff that he's written towards the in his later book with games of Game of Thrones, there's still character redemption. You know, there's hope even even against the backdrop of war with all the misery. The characters are still there's almost an element of tragedy with them fighting against these impossible struggles, but carrying on. But the, the, there's nothing in in this. Which uh, is kind of why little... I love it. <laughs> yeah. But let's let's not get too spoilery. We will do, I suspect, more than half of this will be in the spoiler section because it'll be hard to discuss it meaningfully without. But I think it is it is an interesting discussion to talk about when this was written and how it was received and how Agatha Christie wrestled with the ending and trying to inject that hopefulness in the plays and other adaptations of it. But let's maybe give the reader a little, the reader, the listener, a little bit of background. So, my friends, we're going to talk about this. We're going to attempt to talk about the spoiler free. I'm not entirely sure how that's going to work for the first part of this episode. As always, we're going to talk a little bit about the historical context in which it was written, um, any links to the Christie first. I think we do need to talk a bit about the title of the book or the changing title of the book. We're going to give you a bit about the plot and some of the characters and what is regressive or progressive. And then we're going to go into the spoiler part of the discussion quite early on so that we can really talk about, you know, what is going on in terms of choices Agatha Christie made, the tone of it and how that has changed over the years. So does that sound like a plan, folks? Is that a way of approaching it? Yes, uh, definitely. It is worth saying if you've never heard of And Then There Were None, and if if this intro has intrigued you, this is the world's best-selling mystery. According to Wikipedia, it has over 100 million copies sold. It's one of the best-selling books of all time, period, regardless of genre. Um, apparently, it's, the, it's listed as the sixth best-selling title in any language, including reference works, which I find kind of amazing. And the basic plot of the novel is that eight people are lured onto a small island off the coast of England and each of them has received an unexpected invitation and they get there and there are also two members of staff on the island so there's 10 people on the island and weather sets in they there is no way to signal to the shore or to get off or on the island and slowly they start dying 
And they realize they're starting to die in accordance with a nursery rhyme that has been pinned up in each of their rooms. And it's based on a very normal English nursery rhyme, which I don't know if it still exists. I don't know, Pat, did you hear this when you were a little kid? But I didn't, but apparently it would have been very common at the time. And it goes no, ten. No, ten I, I never heard it. So. Yeah, <laughs> me neither. But apparently, this is how it goes: Ten little soldier boys went out to dine. One choked his little self, and then there were nine. Nine little soldier boys sat up very late. One overslept himself, and then there were eight. Eight little soldier boys traveling in Devon. One said he'd stay there, and then there were seven. Seven little soldier boys chopping up sticks. One chopped himself in halves, and then there were six. Six little soldier boys playing with a hive. A bumblebee stung one and then there were five. Five little soldier boys going in for law. One got in chancery and then there were four. Four little soldier boys going out to sea. A red herring swallowed one and then there were three. Three little soldier boys walking in the zoo. A big bear hugged one and then there were two. Two little soldier boys sitting in the sun. One got frizzled up and then there was one. One little soldier boy left all alone. He went out and hanged himself and then there were none. So, and then there were none is obviously the current title of this book. And you can tell from that fairy tale that it's really, really, really grim. And that's the kind of the framing device of the story. And that's probably as much as we'll go into in this part of the podcast. Yeah, not, not the sort of kids nursery rhyme I think I would have wanted to hear, hear when I was growing up either. No. Not, no, not the thing that's going to send you to bed. Yeah. Well, the original was worse. Because <laughs> this is not the this is the sanitized version of that. I was that yes, this is actually an I read a poem that dates back to 1868. Really? Yeah. Yeah, but I, I thought it was an American poem. There's two poems that have similar titles. Okay, so we we should probably say to the reader yeah. that if 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 you're at all sensitive to racial epithets, this is the time to bug out. There's going to be a lot of reference to the N-word and also to Indians as a pejorative as well. Um, we're not going to use the N- well, my choice is not to use the N-word. Um, I no, find I agree it with that. So we're going to refer to it. Yeah, we're going to refer to it as such. Uh, basically, when this novel was published in November 1939 in the UK, it was called Ten Little N-Words. And the island upon which the characters go to oh. is called N Island. And I apparently it was named, Yeah, apparently it was named after an eighteen sixty-nine minstrel song, which serves as a major plot element. Oh already already the US publisher said this is too racially charged for the US market. And bear in mind that the US market was actually financially far more lucrative for Agatha Christie at this point with the um the serialization rights. So already they changed the title there to and then there were none. And then they changed the the word in the song from ten little N words to ten little Indians. So that was a, a title used also in some American editions um, between 1964 and 1986. So I find it fascinating that it wasn't seen as offensive in the UK until the 80s, but immediately in 1939, they were like, oh, this is a bridge too far. Hannah what, and Bing, what are your thoughts on all of that? My life. I I thought that you guys were going to talk about it being called Tent Little Indians because, yes, you know, that's yes. the name. Of the that song. was a sanitized song. version of that title. <laughs> I, for I, them. Have, I have never heard that before. I, I'm so shocked. But can I just say that if you are over in the UK, which abolished slavery and stuff way before the United States did, and even the United States of all damn places is saying, 
going, hmm, this is not good. <laughs> I think you've you've done fucked up a little bit. Well, I think I the never problem heard... is that yeah, well, the like, problem it, it, is, is that when because you, we don't have, I mean, we're of course hugely implicated in slavery here, and have done a very good job in hiding it. But because it's not as obvious, because we didn't have like, you know plantations on our own land, I think in a sense there's a kind of complacency about it, and therefore words and things that aren't used in America still get used here because it's sort of it's almost like it's more distanced do you think that's fair Pat like it feels like it's further away because I I, 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 definitely like no you don't say that and people that do are disgusting and I was raised that way and even even my dad who's from like Texas even he was raised that way in the 50s yeah, well, um, I, I think what, what Bean has given is a good explanation. It's obviously not a justification. And I think when you're saying we've messed up, Hannah, I think you're right. You know, it, it, we're guilty as charged. Certainly, like, I don't know how Bean's family would have been, but I do remember my grandparents using words like that when I was a child growing up. And it was seen as normal. And I would say that the first time I became aware of it being a problem would have been when I started listening to rap music in the late 80s and early 90s. And when you're listening to people like Public Enemy talking about things like this, it opens your eyes up. You know, as a white middle class person, you know, coming from a white background, hanging out with white people 99% of your time, you, you just don't see this sort of yeah. stuff I you know really appreciate so. it because like you know, growing up i didn't have a problem with the word indian obviously now we realized <laughs> yeah. how offensive that is and we we you know we call them indigenous peoples and there's a lot of amends to be made i mean and there, there are other terms there are other colloquialisms for almost every culture that i can think of that were bandied about pretty casually um, especially by people who, you know, served in World War II. Um, you know, there were some holdovers that they picked up from World War One, like referring to Italians as a certain word starting with a W and, yeah. you know, a word. But that the context of England in the 1980s when I was growing up. And for the listener who doesn't know, I am a brown person. And, um, you know, we were growing up in a time where, you know, a major brand would advertise with gollywogs. So cute little black toys that. Yeah. And and like we're we're talking about this in the context of minstrel shows. Yeah. yeah. That was something that my grandparents could relate to. Like they they talked to me about the black and white minstrels. You know, exactly. When you're a kid growing up, uh, they're talking to you as if this is something perfectly normal. And they thought it was hilarious. But but you look back now and there's a sense of guilt about it. You're like, you know, I didn't realize at the time. And I am. I'm I'm sorry. You know, that's all you can say, really. You've got to be mortified by it. You know, I am having a culture shock right now. I never knew. So in the case of the U.S., especially since when this book was first published during the Second World War. So that's another very important historical context here. This book was published during World War II. I think in the U.S., they very quickly recognized that this was a problem because this word was central to a lot of the racial conflicts that were already happening at that time. It was front and center. Sure, it, the in, in many parts of American society, of course, obviously, racism was an intense problem, but it was also quite in your face uh, in the sense that there were lynchings, there were also, uh, the, the Jim Crow laws. There were already a lot of sort of back and forth about that. And there were also African-Americans who were standing up against that, uh, uh, the, the rise of pan-Africanism and these sort of ideologies. So there's a much, much stronger social awareness that this is a word that is unacceptable to a large segment of population already back then. 
which isn't mm. the case in the, in the UK, which doesn't well, mean- Well, then we had like, the first Red Scare and the Communist yeah. American Party trying to fight for that, integration stuff right, right and around that. that. Yeah, yeah, and that all of that will come. And again, that's And, and, just, and think of, of yeah. the UK at the height of British imperial power, right? And we'll get right. onto it with some of the other dodgy stuff in this book. But right. I think it's important, and it's why I wanted to do this reread, because Agatha Christie writes from the early 1920s through to the 1970s, and it enables us to see how what was considered okay changes for a mainstream audience. And I think it is fascinating to know that that, that word was not seen as okay for a mainstream audience 35 years earlier than it was seen as not okay for a UK audience. Yeah. And if that's blowing your mind, then I feel this podcast is doing its job because it's it, it, it enabling us to examine why that was the case and why racism is different in the UK than in the US, both pernicious but differently pernicious. And how we, we in, we in Europe can, can often have a very condescending attitude towards the States in terms of race <laughs> relations. And this shows that we can't do that, you know. It, that, so, is, it, that is absolutely wild to me. Let's do a bit of the historical context. I think as we get through the World War II years, I am going to do a little bit more than usual about what's going on in the world, because I think it is so important for how the books come across and what Agatha Christie is writing and what her publishers are telling her to write, because it will go back and forth during the war as to what audiences will accept. As I said, this was published in November 1939, so it was probably written before the war really began, and certainly before the US was in the war. But let's see what happened between the publication of the, the prior novel that we read that was published at the start of the year and this novel. In those months, Hewlett Packard was founded. Does that blow your mind that HP is that old? <laughs> It blew my mind. <laughs> Amelia Earhart was declared dead. General Franco seized power in Spain. Uh, very relevant to this podcast, Billie Holiday recorded Strange Fruit. And I wonder if that um, at all influenced the publishers. Uh, Batman made his first appearance in Detective Seven. <laughs> Enzo Ferrari founded Auto Avio Construzione. Uh, so Ferrari was founded. The Molotov That's Ribbentrop right. Pact was signed. Hitler, of course, invaded Poland um, and World War II for the United Kingdom certainly began on September 3rd. So when people receive this book in the UK, we are in World War II. Uh, New York Municipal Airport was founded, a.k.a. Uh, LaGuardia. Uh, the first NFL game was televised. That feel too early for you? That that that, that blew my mind a little bit. No. And the, yeah, and the, oh, but I know television is older than when I think of it rising to popularity. Yeah. Um, the first nylon stockings went on sale. And shortly after the book was published, again, maybe relevant to the title and the discussion we've had, Gone With The Wind was released. So... I've got one thing yep. to add to your list as well that you've missed. Go then. Um, Orson Welles did the first dramatic presentation of a Poirot. Really? Uh, a radio play. Yeah, he did The oh. Murder of Roger Ackroyd, 1939. Oh, yeah. fantastic. So, I, I just thought it was relevant. I came across it while I was having a look through some of the um, the Wikipedia stuff. It must be true because it was on Wikipedia. So. There you go. Absolutely. That's a great no, that's great. But it's a great mix, isn't it, of very modern things like Hewlett-Packard and LaGuardia Airport and then war-breaking out obviously but also these very big cultural moments you know batman mm. billy holiday strange fruit that one really stuck out of me because i was like gosh if that was in the air then you can imagine why publishers would well, be really like, worried about 
that title. Yeah, I thought the, the Orson Welles one was interesting as well because it shows that uh, Christie is popular in America. Like if they start to dramatize mm-hmm. the Poirots, then it's obviously taking off there as well. Yeah. Right. Well, and I wonder, you know, like how that affects her life then with royalties and all as well. Um, mm. And if there's influence on her works going forward from a rise in fame like that. The one that stuck out to me in your list, Bina, is the Ferrari, though, in the context of Anthony Marston. Mm, yeah. His line, you know, speed's here to stay, boys. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And the commercialization, it's kind of interesting because we've seen in the very early books, one or two very rich, aristocratic young women erratically driving cars, but they're these very strange things. And there's not really other traffic on the road to now them being quite widespread and the concept of traffic accidents. Mm. Um, I think maybe before we get into sort of plot and characters, let's just finish up on the progressive regressive. Um, Obviously, we've done the title, um, but there is other stuff in here. And I think it is important to remember that this is Britain at the height of empire. Uh, sorry, I, I just have, I, I've got one more question on the title. And I, I, I think it's only something that sort of came along to me in like the last 24 hours. And it, it has started to make me feel more uncomfortable about Christie than maybe I was expecting to. And she was aware that the American audience had a problem with this title. Mm-hmm. And she's effectively sat on the change until her death. And and it's not happened in the UK until 1985. And I would have thought that she would have been powerful enough to have changed it sooner. And I, I almost wonder why she didn't. Well, because for her, it wasn't an offensive word. It was just a descriptive. Yeah, even though she'd had conversations with her American publishers who explained to her why they wanted it changed. And she'd sort of but dismissed it's, but that. It's, and co- it's cognitive dissonance, though, isn't it? Like, But she would have had a conversation with American publishers who will have sat down with her and said, we're going to change the title of your book. And we're going to remove every reference to the N-word in it and replace it with soldier because it's racially offensive in our country. And she'll have turned around and said, yeah, I'm okay with that, but I'm going to leave it. I think it's very slippery. You know, definitely. I I mean, I I, I hear it as an explanation. I'm not sure it makes me feel any more comfortable with Christie as a. I don't think you should. (laughs) Uh, I think Christie is a product of her time. I don't find her particularly more offensive than some of the other people who are people who are also still hailed as even greater heroes than I heard like Winston Churchill go read Winston Churchill's writings the man was insanely mm. racist well, again somebody who's coming from an Irish background Winston Churchill is charged with his own right. theories of problems and it's a different debate isn't it so. yeah, yeah and see and coming from different again coming from different viewpoints these people can be viewing different lenses and I think from the lens of again cultural sensitivity no Agatha Christie she has her issues she definitely has issues and these are issues that should be confronted uh, when you evaluate her but mm. uh, but you also sort of have to take into account what was the environment she grew up with why why was yeah. she the way she is not so much condemning her or praising her or anything like that it's just understanding who she is i yeah. completely agree and that's why we did this podcast and i think i think you're right pat, pat that we should feel uncomfortable about it and insofar as it makes us question i think that's a really good thing um and i always think to myself are people better or worse than the cultural norm of their time. Because obviously the cultural norm of this time in the UK was not okay. It was a colonial imperialist racist norm. Um, There were people who were obviously worse than the average, like the British Union of Fascists. And there were people who were obviously Mm -hmm. better and more enlightened and who were lobbying for, you know, civil rights and lobbying against colonialism and who were better. And I think Agatha Christie, why she's interesting to me is she's absolutely on the line. And I think that as her attitudes change, it's a really good reflection of where the absolute mainstream of British 
Jewish thought was. And it just teaches you something about that. And I, mm. you know, it is shocking. The original title of this book tells you something about the, where the mainstream of British attitudes towards the N-word were. For me, is like, it is mind-blowing and it should be mind-blowing. And I think yeah. Agatha Christie, we condemn her insofar as we condemn the mainstream. But to me, she's absolutely on the mainstream. And what's really interesting is I've been reading a few uh, mainstream thrillers and detective novels from people like John Buchan that were written in the same era as this. So sort of 1937 through 1940. And mm. they are so much worse. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a reason why you can change a few things in Agatha Christie um, and still have her published today and popular. You, you would have to totally flipping overhaul some of those other books, um, mm. which is it's not to make it better about Christie, but it's just to show you I think the range, the range was pretty big. Um, but, you know, you look at, and that, you know, Gone with the Wind was published the same year in the United States mm -hmm. and is also one of the biggest selling books of all time. And I would argue, let's not overestimate how wonderfully enlightened the US publishing industry was to get rid of this title from, and then there were none in 1939. Because at the same time, they're publishing one of the biggest apologist novels for the kind of the American South and slavery that's ever, and really pernicious kind of depictions of the American South and slavery. You know, there's a whole nother podcast to be done on Gone with the Wind, probably, I think. Um, and just to add to the racist bonfire while we're getting there, um, one of the characters in this novel um, says the following about he's been a soldier of fortune in East Africa, which was a colonial uh, British colony, and says, not quite the act of a pukka sahib, I'm afraid, but self-preservation is a man's first duty. And natives don't mind dying, you know. They don't feel about it as Europeans do, which I think is probably a good encapsulation of the colonial mindset, which arguably Winston Churchill shared, that there were first-class citizens whose rights and feelings and sensitivities and sympathies were on a certain level. And then there were natives or coloreds or colonials or however you want to refer to them. And these were second-class people, if people at all. They were just, you know, generic natives. And they were like the imperial stormtroopers. They didn't, they weren't actualized. They didn't have individual opinions. They weren't sensitive. They, they didn't have sensibility. And they could be killed 10 to a dozen. Didn't matter. Didn't matter as much as white lives. I think that that phrase I just read out really sums up the imperialist mindset. And it's really, yeah. I mean, to me, that's almost as shocking as the whole concept of the N-word. Well, yeah. yeah. But I, I, again, I, I think um, it, it, in Christie's defense on that point, I think what she's doing is she's representing the opinion of an unpleasant person. Uh, yeah, I think this was actually criticism. This was actually criticism of imperialism. But uh, I think yeah. if you read Christie's novels, like if you read The Man in the Brown Suit, The One Set in South Africa, if you read her novels where there are, you know, imperial um, citizens who are not white, then you can see that attitude carry over. And I think it it's, um, I just wanted to read that as context for the N-word, because I think if you think that she's desensitized to the racism, probably yes, because she's she's living in part of a world, in, in a country, where racism is really embedded into the imperial system. So this American concept of racism probably just feels like, oh, that's just another variety of it, you know, like it, you've got to understand that Britain itself was part of a system just as pernicious, but just differently, so. Hmm. Well, and, and I mean, so I think Christie 
in creating a character of Phil Lombard, I think sort of shows that she is she is critical, or she she at least very found disgusting one particular form of imperialism, which is the type of the the, the adventurer, yeah. right? the, the the Cecil Rhodes, the the Livingstons, those kind of types yeah. of individuals, because that's what Lombard is essentially. Um, and these are people who are even at that time still lionized in Britain. So at the very least, yeah. she's able to separate these people. Now, I'm not going to say she's just fully enlightened on the issue of imperialism. But she's at least able to pick up, okay, these individuals, they're doing bad. They're actually doing very bad things. Okay, listener, we're now going to go to the spoiler part of this podcast, which is earlier than normal. (laughs) And we have to, right? Because I don't think there's any way to really talk about the characters and talk about the adaptations without giving away spoilers. I would seriously, and I'm sure everyone on this podcast would recommend that you read this novel if you haven't already, rather than just listening on, because it does rely, it is a big sort of concept novel as such. Um, and you should really read it before listening on. It is, I think it's yeah. phenomenal. It, it, it is like, if you're uh, feeling a bit low at the time, definitely don't read it. it. It's not something that's going to cheer you up. It's quite a dark piece. So, And I will say if you uh, want to tackle it quickly and get all that you can out of it, but you don't have time to sit and read, the Audible um, version of this is very good. It's not a radio play. It is the full unabridged work. But the gentleman that does the narration, um, he uses, you know, different voices for the different characters, um, particularly his Wargrave is very good. And uh, it's um, generally just a very pleasant audible. If if you have the time, you can plow through it in about six hours. So. Okay, folks, it's been a 007 here. I think we're going to draw this part of the and then there were discussion to an end. And I will create a second part of this episode that has a full spoiler filled discussion of the characters, the construction of this amazing plot and the way in which the adaptations have dealt with the depressing nihilistic tone of this novel. So stay tuned for part two, which will be published very shortly after part one of this episode. Thank you for listening.